just beautiful. It's one of those songs, it's not the only song we sing today, but it's a song that has the power to kind of lift us out of where we are. This world help us to look forward to the next and remember that God is more special, fascinating, powerful, interesting, stimulating, enjoyable in every possible way and worthy than anything in this world, anything that we worry about or seek for. My name is Douglas Jacoby, and we're continuing our Soul to Soul sermon series today on forging and maintaining godly relationships, a series put together by our brother Jeff Hickman. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the book of Ruth. Lord, we do want to say thank you so much. It's not exactly early, early, but it's great to be here uh, this morning, and we want to walk with you, and we admit that there are plenty of times we're not really walking with you, either we're breaking your will or we're not really focused on it. And so, as every Sunday, we pray that through the fellowship and communion, the singing and the preached word, uh, we will get uh, on track as we need to be and thus motivated to persevere and, and to tell others. Thank you for the series, Soul to Soul. Pray that you'll bless every speaker and every unit in Jesus. Amen. Uh, the first, if you weren't here, two weeks ago, Jeff preached on the relationship of David and Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, Saul, whom David would succeed, and Jonathan, who could easily have been very envious of David, but instead uh, is a best friend. They're not competing at all. Last week, Jeff again looked, uh, took us look, David and his relationship with Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is an interesting fellow. Um, he's... He was powerless. He was, uh, had a serious physical disability, and uh, David shows tremendous love for Mephibosheth. Really, he's showing love for Jonathan and for the family of Saul, love for the powerless. And today, we'll begin looking at one of the shorter books of the Old Testament. It's not Obadiah short, but it is only four chapters, and that's the book of Ruth, which a few years ago, my wife and I got into a lot. But honestly, I don't think I've taught on Ruth in a number of years. And so preparing for this, um, I was reminded of many things, and it's convicting too. Before we get into the text, which I will project, but I won't be offended if you also follow, uh, if you can do two things at one time, which you can't, I won't be offended if you follow along in your paper Bible. What is the context of Ruth? Well, Ruth connects the period of the judges with the monarchy. Now, they may say, that may sound very... Uh, uh, you know, professorly, oh, okay. okay, what's going on? The Israelites, after the Exodus, they come into the Promised Land under Joshua, they, they occupy. The period that follows are not the finest days in Israel, they're among the worst, total chaos in the time of Judges. Judges is really messed up. Ruth actually is set in the period of the Judges. So you could almost call it Judges 22 uh, to 25, I suppose, but it fits right in there. And that's paving the way for the monarchy that begins with Saul and then even begins better with David. And there's a connection between David and Ruth, which uh, we'll probably explore next week. The last verse of Judges is that famous one, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Kind of like any generation that has a problem with authority and likes making the rules. For, for themselves. And then, see the word Elimelech? Just remember that word. Elimelech means 
God is my king. In the period of the judges, the whole point in 1765, uh, 21-2125, is that God was not their king, and that they were actually going to go even farther off course by requesting a king and going against God's original idea. But God worked with it because he knew they would never change. One more uh, kind of background thing I wanted to mention is the idolatry that's going on. Now, Mephibosheth is a mouthful. I don't care how good you are at spelling and pronunciation. But Mephibosheth means something like from the mouth of shame or utterance of shame. What a, what a name to give your kid. You know, uh, you know like it'd be, if, if Guy was my son, I, I named you not so disappointing. I mean, what kind of a name is that? Well, we know from the parallel passages that that actually wasn't his given name. His name was Meribaal. And Baal, the Baals are the weather fertility god. Baal also means husband or lord. And striving against Baal, or possibly striving for him, but I hope that's not the case, that was, uh, that was his original name. And what's happened is his name has been altered because they were really trying to get the idolatry even out of the text. And so his name has changed from Meribaal to Mephibosheth. And Bosheth, the word for, for shame, replaces and you'll see this happening many times in the Bible, like Ishbashet is actually Ishbaal. And I'm, I'm going to leave that with you to work, work on. But it's a background of a constant tug of war between the world and the holy God, between the true faith and idolatry, between the true God and, and the false gods. It's an ungodly situation, and it's going to get worse. It will get really bad. And eventually there will be some glimmer of light at the end of Ruth, but we won't get that far today. We read, In the days when the judges ruled, this is Ruth 1, there was a famine in the land. Often in the Bible when there's a famine, God's people end up relocating somewhere. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. When they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Chilion also died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, if Ruth only had five chapters, it would be one of the most depressing chapters in the Bible. You know, they, they escaped famine, and it looked like they're going to be able to build families. And everyone dies except these three widows. Uh, it's more encouraging than this. You'll notice that the family of Naomi, and some would say Naomi is the main character of the book of Ruth, uh, but I think they should have named it after her if that's the case. But they're from Bethlehem and Judah. They're, they're, there's more than one Bethlehem. The one in Judah, the one near Jerusalem, is the one that King David would be from. That's significant, although we won't really see that until you get to the very last verses of Ruth. 
they go to Moab. You wonder, why in the world would they go to Moab? Don't they worship false gods? Yes, they worship Chemosh and other gods. There's a pattern of God's people in time of famine leaving the country. And even when David's own family later is in big trouble, he sends his mom and dad to Moab, sends them to the king of Moab. Apparently, there were sometimes okay relationships. So this is how they got there. And notice the name of Naomi's husband is right here. It is Melech, King Eli, my God. My God is king. I mean, it ties in directly with the last verse of Judges. It couldn't be uh, more appropriate. So Ruth marries outside the faith. And therefore, she's a good example for us to, to marry a Zen Buddhist. No, no. It, it goes more the other way. She's a pagan. She doesn't know the true God. She marries outside her faith. She moves in the direction of holiness. She comes to know God. By the way, nothing against the Zen Buddhists or the Japanese. It just came to my head. I was trying to choose something way at the other end of the alphabet. All right. So she does that, and, and God works with it. And obviously, Naomi's sons, they marry they call them Moabites, but that sounds like a unit of data in computers. But uh, okay, there, there we go. <laughs> Terabyte, phantobyte, kilobyte. So, you, so you, Ruth is probably in her 20s. I mean, if she, married, if she didn't marry too late, she would have been in her teens. And this is 10 years later or so. So she's right in the middle of the productive, you know, childbearing years. God works with this. Let's keep going. Then... She started to return. This is referring to Naomi. She started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she's hearing that there's good news back in Judah. She set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law. They went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you. To your mother's house, may the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, and the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. Pay attention to the weeping passages in Scripture. Part of the human experience, it's significant. The response of Naomi's daughters. They said, no, we will return with you to your people. I mean, technically, they've been kind of grafted in, plugged into the people of God anyway because of Naomi and Elimelech. But Naomi, I think she, she wants them to follow for the right reason. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? You know, I'm getting old I can't protect you. I have nothing to offer you. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. Technically not true, because you could remarry in your 50s or 60s, but she felt that way. Even though I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you wait until they were full grown? Probably not. <laughs> would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It's been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. They wept aloud, 
Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, Ruth clung to her. Okay, it's important. There are not many characters. We need to know who these are. Naomi is the woman of Judah with her husband had moved uh, to Moab. They moved east out of the land of Judah into Moab where, where Moses had died. After Elimelech dies, Ruth has uh, her, uh, Naomi has her two sons. They marry, but then they die. And so both of those Moabite women are without husbands. And it's a scary place in the ancient world if you're a woman. Uh, you, you need the protection, you need the patronage of a man just for his physical strength, for the way society works. There's a lot of truth to that today, but it was much more the case back then. Think about that. In a hostile world, which is the way much of our planet is, even this year, it is that way for women. Uh, it, it can be very frightening. And although what Ruth expresses is not fear so much as bitterness. She, it's bitter. And she's even going to suggest in a moment that, uh, change my name, call me Mara, call me Bitter instead of Naomi, which is a, a name meaning something like comfort. Orpah leaves Naomi. Look at this last line. So she, she says, uh, don't come with me. No, no, we want to come with you. No, 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 don't come with me. Ruth does, Orpah goes away, which made me think kind of you're out to lunch and it's time to pay and you're picking up your credit card. And the other guy says, I got it. And you said, no, I got it. No, I got it. You sure? Okay, good. And you put your thing back. So Orpah, <laughs> she goes back. Now, that's not like she's a total derelict. She's going back to Moab where her family are. There's probably a good reason to assume there are other Jews back there too. It doesn't mean she's walking into a howling wasteland, spiritually speaking. What happens next? What does Naomi say? See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. But Ruth said, uh, return after your sister-in-law. Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me. That's, that kind of means strike me dead. It's just a way of putting it. And more as well, if even death parts of me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Uh, if you've been around a little while, you'll recognize verse 16. I think it's the most famous verse in Ruth. You know, where you go, I will go. Where you die, um, I will die. You know, your God will be my God. It, it's kind of a cool passage for a wedding, though it's not really about love between a man and a woman. It's a, a more unusual love, a love between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. And this passage here is not primarily about geographic location. It's about conversion. It's about, it, it's a choice, I think, for Ruth to be converted a second time. I mean, I married my husband. I adopted Judaism. Now I'm going to actually go back to the land where this faith was exported from. I'll be surrounded by people who know God. And now, Douglas, didn't you say a few minutes ago it was a really bad situation, getting worse and chaos? Wouldn't it be better if she went somewhere else like Egypt? Okay, bad describes the situation in Israel generally. There are pockets where things are different. And in Bethlehem, things were different. Like in our world today, in churches today, you can find great things. That doesn't mean the overall 
picture isn't somewhat dismal, but it doesn't mean that you paint everyone with the same brush, okay? There, there are always exceptions. The terrain is not flat. There are bumps and mountains and things, uh, valleys. I admire someone like Ruth, who's willing to reach across culture. Well, in a way, she's already done it by marrying an Israelite. But this, is, this has big implications, because now she's hoping that she'll marry an Israelite, a second Israelite, but she's moving to a country that was not her first choice. We admire people who will do this. Uh, I think of many people in this room who've moved countries. Some of you are here because you've moved countries. Some of you are here and you're gonna go to another country. Hopefully not because you hated the sermon. But we, we do shift around. Some people move for missionary purposes. Some people move because they want stronger spiritual influence. And that might mean simply moving from one city to another city in your country. For, for my wife and me, uh, we've gone through six international moves. We know what that's like. And we know the kinds of things that happen. Uh, always uh, trying to understand the culture, trying to say the right thing, trying not to say the wrong thing. You may know I, I, I lived in Europe around 12 years, several years in Sweden. I remember once I was doing a leadership lesson and it was in the time when you like to make your lesson spell something. Each point began with a letter in a word. And this was a six-letter word. And it was a time when the verb crank was um, quite uh, in vogue. Crank not as mechanically start up your 1928 porter. Uh, this is crank like make things go. Get the machinery of ministry moving. And it was one of those is a full-time ministry for me talks. And I spelled it out in Swedish. Ko, er, e, ene, ko, e. And everyone was just stunned at the end. And my associate, Chris Reed, said, so it, it hit people. He said, yeah, you really made them think. You, well, what do you mean? He said, well, Krenka, you just spelt out the word for sexually violate people. See, <laughs> I had ended the message. Then I spelled it out and made the connection explicit. I said, let's go out there in Stockholm and let's sexually violate as many people as possible. <laughs> These things happen. <laughs> A year later, my Swedish was better, but sometimes you just, you, you guys who speak, you speak Creole or Spanish, you know, you, you mix in English sometimes. You're not sure what to say. Vicky and I always wanted to be hospitable. We wanted people to feel comfortable dropping by our home. And, and, I, and I, I was speaking in Swedish, I said, you know, Nika Nersimhaus, drop a bite, what leg in here? Drop a bite. And like half the crowd giggled and the other half didn't say anything. <laughs> so I had to find out, what is, what is it? He said, well, drop a bite, that's to defecate. So we're saying, we're family, you're, you're in the area anytime, come to our apartment, do number two. You know, we're, we're gonna be really, no secrets. I, I try to be more careful now. Sometimes in a fatigue state, I'll, I'll, I'll do something silly. I was on some French or Swiss airline, I don't remember, and it was the, it was the beverage cart. And uh, they said, what would you like to drink? And I'm thinking, okay, what's the word for? Because I like apple juice, you know, Hugo de Manzana, I like that a lot. I said, uh, jus de pomme de terre, <laughs> which is potato juice. You know, pomme de terre, the earth apple, that's the potato, palm is apple. I said, I would like some potato juice. So the flight attendants are cracking up. I'm crying. Okay. <laughs> it's not just the language part of, of relocating. 
it's everything connected to language. It's culture and it's relationships. And this is a big deal. And she's willing to cross over, see how it ends. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. The two here are Naomi and Ruth. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She's been gone a long time. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord's brought me back empty. You know, why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Does she have some baggage? Some pain? Wow. Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, that's, that's the last scripture we're looking at this morning. What's going on here? Ruth has said, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Ruth is not going to let her mother-in-law die a lonely woman. I mean, truth is, Ruth, Orpah, and, and Naomi were all at risk. Ruth had, she was more marketable, marriageable, right? Manageable. Naomi is feeling bitter. She's feeling, she knows it's not true, but she feels like God's against her. Don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, call me Mara. But Ruth's not going to let her die in that way. Now, if we went past the barley harvest, which is a very exciting time in Judah, we went past there, we would meet the third major character of Ruth, and his name is Boaz. Boaz means, in him, strength. And the story of Boaz and Ruth and their relationship is quite amazing, and you'll hear about that next week. Ruth is going to cross a barrier, marrying a foreigner a second time, and she also, as you will see, but I won't prove it yet because we're not going to go to the next chapter, she's going to marry an older man. Takes a certain gutsiness to do that. And of course, again, it's that religious barrier. Uh, she's used to Moab and Chemosh and everything surrounding that, and she's coming to Israel. Before we examine the major lessons that, observe, that emerge here, things we need to take away, some of which we need to think about during communion, I want to ask a few questions. Thinking of our own family of origin, this is the family in which you were born. Like my first eight years, I was brought up in a very prejudiced part of the United States. Um, we thought we weren't prejudiced, but what do you know? Uh, no one thinks he's prejudiced. Here the question is, does my family reflect prejudice in any form, and even how about now? It's not your, you may still have a family of origin, but if you've created a family or you've been integrated into the world of your brothers and sisters and nephews and nieces, how's it going? Do I attend an integrated church but otherwise live a segregated life? A few, few weeks ago, oh, it was August 20th, I was preaching here. It was the day Arturo from, from Mexico uh, shared, if you may remember him. Uh, they just suffered very minor, uh, in a very minor way in the earthquake. 
though the Mexico City earthquake of 32 years before almost killed his mother and father, and actually it's what helped them to become Christians. You know, it's the silver lining. Well, a guest who came that day uh, was a, is a professor of psychology whose specialty is racial diversity. And I said, well, you're going to enjoy coming to North River. So, he, you know, he came here. He's looking around. I think his eyes are about to pop out of his head. And then you've got the Mexican sharing, which was great. Uh, uh, I was preaching, but we had all kinds of people. I leant over to him in the closing song. And then I realized you shouldn't talk to her in the closing song. So I just froze and I waited six more seconds. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and I, then I told him, these people, it's not, they don't just sit together, Hispanics with Cambodians and Chinese with Japanese and black and white. They don't just sit together at church. They are together throughout the week. A lot of them marry each other. There are lots of international marriages. Marriage between people of two nations can be even more significant than a marriage between two races. Uh, and it, so it's not just a Sunday thing, it's throughout the week. You need to come back. And he was like, hmm, he had a long beard, which he was stroking. What does that mean? I know it's powerful stuff. How about this question? Would I marry or be happy if I had a child who married someone from another national or ethnic background? My folks definitely didn't want me to marry non-American, but I decided to marry made in Britain, and I'm very glad I did. But this may, you may, you may say this doesn't apply to me. Maybe you're going to be single, and that's your plan, and that's fine. Or maybe you don't have kids near that age. Good question. Good question. Do I avoid older people? Douglas, define older. No, I'll let you do that. Do I define... See... The relationship between Ruth and Naomi, although they are one generation apart, it's close, it's intimate. You know, they don't want to release each other. They value that connection. Do I seek to connect with older people in the fellowship? In North River, honestly, that means that the major for the majority, I'm an older person. All right? Figure out where you are. But if you only talk to people you're comfortable with, I think you're missing an opportunity to learn, to help, to minister. To, to be Christ-like. Do I care about my in-laws? Always a good question. Ruth did. Or elderly family members. Maybe you're not a Christian. Or maybe you're kind of Christian. You were kind of brought up with church, but didn't really take it very seriously. Am I too proud to relinquish my religious background if it's keeping me from God? And how about this? When's the last time I truly stepped out on faith like Ruth. Don't think this was an easy thing just because she loved Naomi. It was a hard thing. As she crossed this barrier, this beautiful decision, Ruth's faith, her loyalty to, to Naomi and to God is outstanding. And I think her friendship, her love to Naomi was outstanding because Ruth had come to know God. And God is the basis, the solid basis for human relationships. Without God, you're at elevated risk, maybe severely elevated risk. Secondly, and I've got three, three lessons that emerge, God crosses relationship barriers, all kinds of barriers. It's not just ethnicity. It's not just religious background. It's age, 
it's class, sometimes it's education, sometimes it's accent or, you know, music. But God breaks through those relationships, and godly relationships are not doomed to just in, make you end up being friends with someone predictably almost like you. Uh, we have tremendous opportunities in the church. And then last, if you're not yet a Christian, I would challenge you to do what Ruth did. Leave your old world behind, the one you're familiar with, the only one you've known. Join the people of God. Ruth said, I want to be with you, and your God will be my God. And when you die, and when you're buried, I'll be right there with you. I mean, nothing is going to separate us from Ruth. And just a, kind of an appendix to this note, if you want to hear some great lessons about Ruth, even if you're a guy, they're out there in the book area. These are recorded by my wife, Ruth, the story of, of Ruth, Ruin, Romance, Redemption. Well, what's coming up? Well, next week, we'll be looking at Ruth, Naomi, and Tom. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, <laughs> that's with Tom Brown. But for right now, we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. As we reflect on Ruth chapter 1, uh, let's prepare. These are some thoughts. Ruth's decision to join God's people was not taken lightly. Don't trivialize it. Don't say it was easy for her. It, it, it was a serious decision. We also, in communion, according to Paul, are called to discern the body of Christ, that is, the church. We're to discern his people, not take it lightly. And his broken body and blood are represented by bread and wine, and as those elements make us think of Jesus, they're supposed to make us think of Jesus' body, the body of Christ, the church. Discern the body, uh, which is made up of all those who've made that decision, and it's a lifelong, to the point of death decision, like Ruth, that we're going to be faithful to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this tangible reminder of your presence, your life. It's not, it's not a lot of wine or bread, but it does remind us. We thank you for being willing to accept us, for calling us to seriously consider whether to remain in Moab or to cross over to Judah. If Moab is looking appealing now, or we're looking back or doubting our faith, help us to turn our back on Moab and head home to Bethlehem. If we've never become Christians, help us to escape the gravity or the specious arguments that might make us feel justified. Help us to make the right choice, choose the right God. For all of us, help us to be discerning of your people. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.